listening to The Jim Laird Show on Body IO FM, where health and performance collide with your host, Jim Laird. Hello. Welcome, everyone, to the, this edition of The Jim Laird Show brought to you by Body IO FM. Today I have my my good friend um, Chris Freeman with me. Chris is a, uh, a a strength coach and a trainer, kettlebell instructor. He currently works out of Lexington Athletic Club, where I worked for a significant period of time. And the interesting thing about what I do for, especially being in Lexington since two thousand one, is and being in a place like LAC, Lexington Athletic Club, you know, for as long as I was there, I think from like two thousand one to like two thousand nine. You're dealing with like four or five thousand people, you know, four or five thousand members. You're seeing thousands of different people a day, and you get to meet all sorts of interesting people. And I first met Chris probably when you were what in middle school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About and, fourteen. Um, Chris was this kind of skinny kid, great kid that uh, was working out with one of the the coaches there, and. Um, He'd come in there all the time. At the time, he was going to like a, a private Christian school, and he later went to, to public high school. But, you know, one day Chris kind of disappeared. I didn't see him for a while, and then he came back, and he had, you know, this skull and crossbones tattoo on his elbow. And I was like, dude, what's what's <laughs> what's going on here? And it was kind of like, I was like, uh, kind of shocked, because I, I never would have thought in a million years. And he was like, well, I, I joined the Marine Corps. And I was like, wow, like, okay, that's kind of a little bit of a, a culture shock. And then... I'll just kind of give you an overview of the history is, is, uh, you know, Chris ended up having a, a very serious trauma and, and, and saying that in, in this interview, the main reason I wanted to do this interview is that every person in life goes through struggles and goes through adversity, everybody to a different degree. Obviously people, you know, some people have, you know, issues they think that are really big that obviously are not. Um, but Chris has been through some pretty hellacious things. And in this interview, I'm going to ask him a lot of personal questions. So, you know, Chris, and we're doing this in person, actually, which very rarely happens. So, you know, saying that as a disclaimer, I'm, I might ask some pretty uncomfortable questions. And, and I've told Chris uh, before the interview that he's more than welcome to basically veto any of the questions that I ask that might be might be too personal because we're dealing with, you know, combat and injuries and traumas and death and all that kind of stuff. So we, we could end up getting into some uh, some stuff that's a little too sensitive uh, for Chris, and he, he has the veto power on that. Um, so, but, but basically, I met I met Chris. He ended up going into the Marines, and then Chris ended up getting getting injured severely. And uh, we'll talk about that. But then I actually got to work with Chris at a at a facility here in, in Lexington. And, and, and Chris and I have spent a lot of time together. So I've, I've worked with Chris. I've been around Chris. And, and we still uh, interact professionally and as friends. Um, so I've known Chris for a, for a very long time. So I, I think this interview is, and, and we're going to get into talking about what Chris is doing now to help others with, you know, what he's been through. And, 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 and that's really, really admirable. And uh, I think that's something that people need to grasp is that when you go through difficult situations, you know, that's a way of, you know, whatever you believe faith-wise, but that's a way that you're basically gaining experience so that you can help others. You know, if you take your adversity in your life, 
and you learn from that, you know, whether it's sickness or illness or, or, or cat catastrophe, you know, you're going to be able to help other people through those things, through your experience. So you can always turn these things into a positive. So Chris, why don't we just, um, uh, why don't we just start with, you know, when I met you in middle school, you know, what, what did you play sports? Like what, what kind of stuff were you into at that time? Sure. So, uh, thanks for having me, Jim. Oh, you're it's welcome to be here. Um, so I started off, I was pretty, uh, I would consider myself pretty unathletic. Um, to an extent, I would be what I would consider a motor moron. Um, as far as my ability to, to learn, my body awareness just was awful. And I didn't grow until my sophomore year of high school, right? So I got into a little bit of football. In retrospect, I didn't even know that there was track and you can you know, throw things or maybe wrestling. And, uh, but I like being part of a team. I like training with weights. And I quickly discovered... Uh, in gym class, actually, how weak I was, and uh, you know, just from sitting on the couch for a few years playing video games, and I was rolling the guitar and music as a kid. Um, so, you know, when I started using my body and trying to challenge myself, I realized how low my level of preparedness was, and it uh, it pissed me off, and it kind of got me going and got me in the gym, and that's when I started, you know, running into you at LAC, and you know, I was training with another coach, uh, Coach Brian there, and. Uh, you know, that kind of got me started. Yeah, and I was a little different person back then than I am now, but sure, uh, <laughs> in some ways. And as um, far as my draw to the Marine Corps, you know, people have asked me that, and I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure it came from seeing a, a special on the Discovery Channel making Marines. Right. And I was shocked. Um, it was a, a like a 30 or 60 minute special about boot camp. Mm -hmm. And the change in these kids, I was like, I want this. Okay. Like I need this. So, so that's basically what inspired a motor moron, who, <laughs> who is basically physically uh, not inept but challenged, right? Um, to join the Marine Corps because you was like, oh wow, that's what I want. You know, I want to have that what they've got. Right. Okay. You know. So, so how did you do, did you go to the recruiting office? You, you enlisted on your own. Yeah. Uh, so, so when I got serious about it, um, I was like, well, I need to, I need to train. So I started, you know, doing a little bit of research online. I got some books, you know, about, you know, PT exercises and, you know, I basically did the whole, you know, pull ups, push ups, sit ups, three mile run type of deal. And, um, I saw progress mm -hmm. and I was hooked. Cool. Uh, did a lot of swimming, a lot of running. And, um, you know, from that point, once I was ready enough physically, I started talking to the recruiters um, 2003, so that would have been my senior year of high school, and I actually enlisted, my parents had to co-sign because I wasn't 18 yet, so somehow in war, you know, combat, wartime, 2003, I convinced my parents to co-sign for me, my enlistment papers, because at that time, guys were pushing so hard to go into infantry that it was backed up, I couldn't even go to boot camp till July, right. which worked out for me because I wasn't graduating until June anyways, Right. so... So, so basically, you, you enlisted during a combat, uh, you know, we were in active combat in, in Iraq uh, yeah. when, when, when you enlisted. And, and what was your, your, did your parents have a lot of hesitation? Oh, sure. I mean, they were like, you're completely crazy. I'm, I've been the type of kid that I get into something and I'm kind of like all in. Right. Um, but I've also had a lot of different interests, you know, since I was growing up and continued to do so. So I think at first they probably thought it was a phase. And they saw how hard I was working to make this goal happen. Right. And uh, you know, I wasn't driven to go to to college right out of high school. Um, I didn't. I knew that I didn't have that drive in me, and I wanted a different path, and I needed to prove myself. And you know, I wanted to. I wanted that challenge. Sure. Um, you know, we see on TV, and we see 
um, you know, SEALs training and, and the Marine Corps, and, you know, obviously out of all branches other than, like, what they do in BUDS, you know, the Marines are the toughest, you know, unless you're getting into, like, the Army Special Forces, like Rangers and Green Beret and things like that. Right. You know, it's the toughest boot camp there is. And, and could you share a little bit about the experience of what it's like to go into that? And was it was it worse than what you expected or because you were educated, it was you you were able to you were like, oh, I know what I'm getting into. Was it was it worse than what you expected? Was it better than what you expected? What what kind of uh, experience did you have? It was about what I expected. Um, you know, physically, I didn't feel like uh, it definitely wasn't the most challenging thing that I did while I was in the Marine Corps. You know, that would be later at uh, Amphibious Reconnaissance School in Virginia. Um, mentally, it was weird because you're, you know, basically your drill instructor's bitch for 13 weeks. Um, and we call it, you know, when you when you go into boot camp, you lose your brain. You right. know, they take your brain from you when you're a Marine, and then hopefully at some point you'll get it back. But <laughs> you've, yeah, you just, you learn to follow, you know, orders and, uh, you know, execute, you know, quickly with intensity. And it's just, uh, it's just a big head game, you know, the whole 13 weeks and, you learn a lot of stuff, uh, but it's just really, you know, yeah, an indoctrination. There's a lot of shouting, a lot of yelling. Um, you know, as far as there's no, you know, physical abuse really to speak of, but you are making guys to go fight a war, so it's not, you know, it's not super easy. Right. It's not but, cupcakes and handholding. No. Uh, you know, there was a there was a few kids in my platoon I can remember. You're gonna graduate on the parade deck with me tomorrow. And I was, you're a Marine, really? Because I would see how they would react to the training. Right. Um, but, you know, not all Marines are combat Marines. So, you know, every Marine's a rifleman, but, you know, that's only true to an extent. But that's why I got drawn to Marine Recon later on. So. Okay. Did Were you selected for that, or did you choose that on your own? So, at that point in time, they now have, like, a uh, like a contract that you can, you can sign. I wasn't promised anything. All that I was promised was I was going to pull a trigger. So, I enlisted as an 0300 open, which is just... Any infantry MOS, and MOS is Military Occupational Specialty, so whatever your job title is going to be. And um, I enlisted as 0300, so uh, when I was at School of Infantry Training, this is after boot camp, you're given the opportunity to take the recon screening. If you have the ASVAB score, your GT score is good enough, meaning you're smart enough, you've got the proper rifle score, and your PFT is high enough. So... At that point in time, I got the opportunity to take your that. PT or your physical preparedness. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, your your physical fitness test, and um, so I passed the screening. You know, there was about five of us out of about fifty kids. They were trying to push, you know, for you know more recon marines at that point in time. Well, obviously in combat, you need that recon is one of the most important important jobs. Yeah, I mean we're t we're talking guerrilla warfare, small unit tactics. Uh, it's just you know necessary for modern warfare, right? So. It was, you know, five out of 50 of us passed the screening, and then five of us went through uh, what you call recon and doc platoon. So they call it RIP. Um, and you're there for, you know, an undisclosed amount of time. How, whenever you can get a school seat, provided your cadres or instructors want to send you to recon school. I was there about three and a half months, and then I uh, went to amphibious recon school, which they no longer have. It's all uh, basic recon course on the West Coast now. So they've done away with ARS, but... Uh, I graduated there in 2005, um, was stationed at Camp Lejeune after that, and I was with the 2nd Recon Battalion. How long were you, between boot camp and your, your recon training, did you actually go to combat? 
It was. Uh, it was you, about, you pretty much knew you were going to war when you enlisted. Oh yeah, that's why I went. Okay. Um, you know, and as far as you know, all the my buddies that I served with in recon, that's that was why we all joined. You know, okay. we were we were craving that. You know, we all wanted to. Um, so that was about two years of training. Why do you Why do you think you crave that combat experience? Was it because of the nine eleven stuff, or was it something inside of you that you just wanted to prove that you could do it? Like, what makes somebody want to go to war you know because i mean you know i think i think hollywood has glamorized warfare you know uh i mean i've watched you know i've i'm a huge history nerd and i've I've always been interested in the military and you know i watched like like saving private ryan if you haven't watched that that is probably the closest rendition you've seen that haven't you yeah real combat that i mean and it's horrible as hell yeah so what going into your mind like what makes a young man want to do something like that when when you know it's not going to be going to be fun. Like what was going? What why, what is your mindset on on something like that? Uh, I would say at first it was probably like the former you see like you know the kind of the glory the the idealistic you know part of war and what has to be done. Later on, it became you know, the training right and the you know they build that into your your makeup now. As your your new identity is a is a marine or a recon marine, that's your new deal. And um, as you grow closer with your buddies on your workup, I mean everything is geared towards towards that that end goal of be, going downrange and you know doing our job, kicking ass, kicking ass. And it's just like I'll never be that cool again, is the joke, you know. Right. But uh, that's how it was, and it was you know it was gory, and you know it was there was a lot of bad shit that went down, but it was also all this training builds up and you're doing your job and nobody's fucking with you. Mm-hmm. You know, the Marines, there's a lot of games and there's a lot of bullshit and there's a lot of your know, red tape, bureaucracy, a lot of stupid stuff, you know, gear inspections twice in the rain. You know, you got to draw all your, dry all your gear out, you know, that kind of stuff. And when you're deployed, you're doing your job and, you know, you're with your team of five guys or your platoon, right. you're punched out and it's at, it feels great. Yeah, that, that camaraderie, you know, I've watched from a lot of the documentaries and stuff that I've watched about World War II and about Vietnam and the reading that I've done. You know, these guys talk about, you know, they haven't seen each other in 40 years, you know, some of these World War II veterans, and then they meet each other, and it's like they've never even left. Like, the bond you get from going to combat with somebody is like nothing else you can experience, you know. Right. And so I can see the kind of the, the, the drive towards that. And you got married at, at that at about at that time too, didn't you? We were actually still just dating. Oh, okay. Um, you know, we'd only been dating for a few months. You know, when I deployed, um, we didn't get married till you know till after after my recovery from injuries and that kind of stuff. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. So I didn't realize that. Well, yeah. We kudos kudos for her for sticking with you up through that. Oh uh, yeah, Jordan's a hell of a girl. So yeah, we've been dating. Uh, I think. Uh, six months mm-hmm. before I deployed right and she was you know right there for, how, how hard was that having a, a relationship while you're in in basic and in training and all that kind of stuff but I imagine it also provides you an outlet when you do get to talk and 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 that sort of thing and and you develop um you know obviously a connection that's beyond just the physical stuff sure you know you develop that kind of emotional connection uh, what was that like for you, you know, having that kind of serious relationship while, you know, obviously I, I would imagine that kind of helped keep you grounded in a way. 
Um, so when I was going through like some of my toughest schools, you know, we weren't, you know, we weren't dating yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but once we started doing the workup, you know, by that time we were together and, uh, you know, d- during deployment. So I would, it definitely changes the way that you think about things, uh, you know, and who you're going to call first, you know, she was number one and then my parents, sorry, mom and dad, but, uh. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it changes the way that you think about things, and I mean, I knew as soon as I, as soon as we punched out, you know, and we got, we touched down in Kuwait, you know, we weren't even in Fallujah yet, I was like, this is the girl that I want to hold on to. I knew, you know, I knew right then, so, it, it, things get serious pretty quick, so that's kind of yeah. how we, kind of how it happened for us. So let's, let's get into the, into the crazy, the crazy stuff, you know, so you were deployed, and, and, you know, obviously you were doing... You know, give us kind of an idea of the kind of stuff that you can talk about that that you were doing once you got there, and and what what the status of the of of events were when you when you got there. Right. So we got into country. Um, you know, we did our left seat, right seat rides. You know, which is where you're transitioning with. We were transitioning at that time with first recon, and uh, you know, it was pretty quiet when we got there. We got there around March 2006. And uh, it was kind of eerie because we were able to walk around places that you're not supposed to be walking around, um, you know. And there's a lot of new guys. It was about 50-50 guys that have deployed one or two times. My platoon sergeant at the time, uh, he, he this was his sixth deployment, so you know it was old hat for him. And uh, but you know we were we were well trained, so we uh, I think it was around April and we started getting hit, you know, a lot with a lot of IEDs at that point in time. You know, boob, booby traps for you that, that don't really know yeah, anything roadside about Roadside bomb combat. is the real common, you know, right. I call it a misnomer because, uh, you know, if it was on the side of the road, it's not going to inflict the damage as if it was directly underneath the vehicle. Sure. So uh, we they ied the shit out of us. Um, you know, some small arms, not really a whole lot of mortar fire because they were so inaccurate, you know, right. why risk it when they could just dig it in right. and make an IED. So um, we hit some really serious stuff in, in May. 2006 um so what we were doing over there we would do anything from direct action raids uh knock and talks where we're going around a a village and we're just um gathering intelligence we're asking them what they need sometimes we make deliveries of food supplies you know toys for the for the kids around there i mean they didn't even have a soccer ball hearts and minds quote unquote hearts and minds exactly and then still you know trying to get some trust so you can get bad guys and, and figure out who you need to take care of. Right, you know, and always be ready to kill. So there was a... I was in primarily in the Zidon when we were in Fallujah, which is kind of a a countryside area. So it was actually surprisingly green because uh, they had a lot of irrigation systems. So that was kind of weird. There was a lot of livestock and a lot of greenery, but it was also... They never had a government, so it was completely yeah, uncontrolled. In other words, there was a lot of foreign fighters that were moving in and out of the area, a lot of insurgents, so it was just kind of a, a little bit wild, I guess. Yeah. So let's get into um, how long um, were you over there and active before you had your incident? So we got there in March, like early March, and I got uh, I got hit June 6, 2006 was the time that I got blown up, which is, you know, it's D-Day. Um, 6606. It's a um, complete irony about the number sequence. Sure. And uh, anytime I see it, it does give me, you know, cold chills. Uh, so, yeah, we've been there about three months. Do you feel comfortable talking about what you went through on that day? Yeah. 
So give me a little bit of an idea what what was going down. I think I believe from the little I know about it, you were out in a Humvee, yeah, doing some. You know, we were doing we were winning hearts and minds, man. We were doing knock and talks. Uh, we punched out early that morning on a, a vehicle patrol. We only had two Humvees because we were only going about a mile and a half from our uh, firm base that so we set up in a house. Um, so we had two vehicles. We punched out. We did some foot patrols, walking around, handing out toys. And uh, we were out there for a little too long, and uh, I don't know if they had, uh, this IED, improvised explosive device, had been dug into a dirt road for a little while, and somehow we missed it on the way out there. Um, the, the way it works is, it's uh, with a pressure plate IED, is you have a positive and negative charge. It could be a PVC pipe, two planks of wood, but their little cars could drive over the shit. You know, right. our it's not enough weight. To... Not enough pressure, right? Right. So the thing about those is they're timed perfectly. So on our way back, um, you know, it's probably around five or six, you know, that time, we hit the IED and it, it blows a huge hole right through the center of our truck. This is all secondhand information because I don't remember any of it. Yeah, which is probably a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, that's one of the silver linings of the whole uh, traumatic brain injury deal is there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of missing parts. Uh, a lot of blanks in my memory so I can remember the last thing that I can remember before I got hit was um, we paused our vehicle before we hit this canal to just sweep it real quick and I was like yeah let's get out of here I had a real bad feeling you're good okay I'm just telling you to get your hands down so oh, sure yeah. sorry so I had a, I had a really bad feeling we got back in the vehicle and that was the last thing that I remember before waking up um, I assume I was in transport, probably from Germany to Bethesda Naval Hospital. I woke up in uh, kind of like a tray situation, and I didn't have a whole lot of room over my head, and I remember kind of freaking out, and they, uh, I guess they shot me up and was something to put me back under, uh, calm me down. Uh, and then I remember waking up in the ICU at Bethesda Naval Hospital a couple days later. How many, uh, how many guys were you with? Um, so we had, we had four. Five guys in our vehicle, too, behind us, and we had uh, myself, my team leader, Mark Schmikowski, and then my turret gunner, Chris Brink, and our interpreter. So we had four in our vehicle. And um, my team leader was killed. It, okay. Were, was anyone else survived, or were you the only one? Yeah, my uh, turret gunner, Chris Brink, yeah. Okay. He, yeah, he's alive and kicking in Melbourne, Florida right now. Okay. So okay. I, I imagine, do you have any guilt over, you know, other people dying and you living? Um, it was, it was, I wouldn't say that I'm over that, but that was probably the hardest thing for me to, uh, that was the hardest thing for me to face when, uh, once I was, you know, out of the hospital and I was focused on my physical recovery, the getting over that took a long time. And I mean, I may never be over it completely, Yeah. but there was a point when I just decided that I've got to live my life, and I've got to honor these guys. Right. And everything, you know, the way that I treat people when I'm checking out at the grocery store, the people that I work with every day while I'm coaching, that's uh, that's my life's work right now, um, is to honor their memory because the last, you know, if, if it had been, you know, the shoe had been on the other foot, I wouldn't want people sulking around and living a bitter existence, carrying around nothing but hate. Right. You know, I'd want them to do something good with her life and, and, and pass that on. So that was the decision that I had to make and that's what I've done. Excellent.
and uh, you've done a wonderful job with that. And Thanks, brother. Let, let, let's talk about the extent of your of your injuries. What you know? What basically did you know? What happened to you? So you had this this bomb blow up underneath you, right? So um, the uh, that like the middle console of the vehicle, I got blown out the left hatch, and um, they when they found me, my helmet was gone. Uh, it was blown about twenty five yards away from me. I don't really know why, because um, I had it strapped on. But there was a lot of overpressure inside the vehicle when, you know, it's all closed up and contained. Sure. All our windows are sealed up. So, um, you know, the fact that I can still hear anything is pretty pretty remarkable. I attribute that to the headset that I was wearing at the time. Um, so I got hit, and I broke my leg in five places. So my uh, tibia, fibula, my femur was broken in three places. And um, I shattered my arm, and my elbow was you know, crushed into pieces. So... Uh, and the worst part was the traumatic brain injury. I had a mild traumatic brain injury. And um, even though it's mild, much worse than just a standard concussion. Uh, they call it an intracranial hemorrhage, which is just a brain tear or a brain bleed. And um, at the time, they they thought it was pretty bad. We kind of were dismissive of it. Um, and my recovery from that initially was pretty quick. But then later on, I started to discover that I had some limitations and some issues that I needed that needed to be dealt with. And those took a lot longer to recover from than, you know, br- broken bones and pieces of shrapnel that got stuck in my leg. So, what was the what was the physical recovery like uh, from that? You know, do you have you know hardware or or anything like that? Yeah. Um, so they, uh, they 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 fixated my leg and my arm, and they they actually repaired the the bones. I never had a cast on my leg or my arm. So what they did was they uh, they. They fixated it with a metal rod down my uh, my shin bone, my tibia, and then uh, screws at the bottom and the top. And then they uh, they fixed the femur fracture with a plate and uh, about 10, 10 pins or screws that run laterally on the head of my uh, the outside of my femur there. And then the same thing with the elbow. They fixed that with a plate around the electron process right there on the mm-hmm. pointy prominence of the elbow, and then about six or eight pins. Okay. What was the mental? aspect of that you know you obviously spent a lot of time in bed and a lot of time in rehab you know what was that experience like and 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 what kind of things did you have to go through mentally to get through that because obviously going from you know being this super fit marine very capable physically to basically having that all taken away from you in an instant you know what what was that like for you yeah that was i mean that's exactly what it was is i was at you know I wouldn't say peak physical condition because when you're deployed, you're, you know, you're just dealing with what you got. But, you know, I was in pretty damn good shape and very physically capable. And now all of a sudden I'm laying in bed broken, um, you know, mentally as well as physically. And it just, uh, it's a real vulnerable feeling that I really didn't like. Um, so the, the initial recovery, I mean, I was in a wheelchair for three months, um, most of that, I actually ended up hopping around my house on one leg uh, because I couldn't use crutches because my right arm was broken. Um, but when I started weight-bearing, that's when uh, the recovery started really picking up. But it was just, uh, it was it was a bear mentally just to be that handicapped. And I hated going out to restaurants. You know, we had to find a wheelchair lift. It gave me an entirely different perspective on how people struggle that, you know, have to have accessible... You know, places all over town they go. You know, I traveled back and forth to the Naval Hospital from home. 
you know, in a wheelchair and they, you know, dropped me a couple times and, you know, it was crazy. I had to go up in the plane, you know, I had to hop up the stairs on one leg cause they didn't have a lift. Um, you know, which I was okay with, but it was, uh, there's just a lot of things that you don't think about. Right. We take for granted. Right. How did your, how did your parents handle this whole thing? Cause you know, obviously like you said before, they had to co-sign for you. Did they, did they feel partially responsible for this? Did, did, did they really struggle with, with the fact that, you know, they basically had to co-sign for you to go in? Is that something, you know, you even talk to them about or, or, you know, that's one thing I've never asked them. I'm sure maybe a small part of them would feel responsible, but they knew ultimately that you would have done it sooner anyways. or later I was right. going to go, you know, it may have been a few months later. Uh, but just incredibly supportive, man, the whole time. That's great. Um, I was able, when I was on convalescent leave for five or six months, I was able to stay at my mom's house here in Kentucky um, and do outpatient physical therapy through Cardinal Hill, which was a stand-up hospital, man. It was great uh, to be able to go back and forth there. And, uh, yeah, mom and dad are great, so I couldn't ask for better parents. How, how did this affect your, you know, obviously you're like a newlywed. How did this affect your, your marriage and your relationship with your wife? It was brutal. It was brutal. And, you know, Jay would tell you the same thing. Um, it was really tough because we got, we got married in 2008. So, and you can see pictures at our wedding. I was still really thin. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, I can remember on our honeymoon, my feet were in such pain. I couldn't even wear my sandals because they hurt the bottom of my feet so badly. So there was just, uh, you know, I was on antidepressants. Um, I had really not even addressed... A lot of the mental struggles, they wouldn't come till you know, a couple of years later. Right. I was, a lot of it was just, I wasn't able to process what happened. Right. And um, I really wasn't able to come to terms with how bad my TBI was with my memory. Um, TBI you know, as in traumatic, traumatic brain, brain injury. injury. Yeah. So they're, they're just finding out a lot more about how that affects your ability to communicate, not just, you know, your, your, you know, memory. Um, you know, vision, that kind of stuff, but your personality changes. Right. You know, you'll hear about people getting in a car wreck and be like, they were just different after that. My, and, my, my great grandfather, uh, or my grandfather on my mom's side went off the Alaska highway Wow. and had a traumatic brain injury, came back, didn't know who my mom was, anything. And he was a totally, totally different person. Yeah. And it, it, you know, became very violent. And, um, you know, people don't realize that you lose the ability to control emotion. You, you know, it, it, you become a different person. And then all of a sudden, you know, this, this, this woman that you married, you know, you're, you're, you're different than you were before, especially with the, you know, the trauma that you go through. I mean, that kind of stuff changes you forever. Um, let's talk about, you know, how long did the actual recovery process take? Um, before you started, like what, you know, here you are, you're in this bed you've got all these physical limitations what, 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 what did you do after that? Like how long did it take you to figure out what you were going to do and, mm -hmm. and, and what was next in your life? You know, I'm sure part of you was just like, well, I'm just going to be a disabled veteran forever. Or, you know, what, what was your thought process in that? Um, so, and it, I mean, they start doing physical therapy before you can really even get out of bed. They'll have you do some things. Um, so the first time that I remember, you know, being able to do more than just the real low-level PT exercises, you know, once I was able to transition from the bed to the chair and I could do, uh, you know, I could take a shower. I only fell twice, mm -hmm. you know, so that was good. 
um, was being able to swim. Right. Because uh, I was, you know, I was supported and I was, you know, fairly weightless in the water. And even though my, you know, my broken limbs were uncasted, I could still swim and I could float. I could hold my breath. And, uh, you know, in, in recon, a lot of people don't realize how much we do in the water. Right. Um, it's called amphibious reconnaissance for a reason. Um, you know, drown proofing is, you know, one of our expertise. I say I'm not a good swimmer. I'm good at not drowning. Yes. Uh, just because all the pool work, the open water fins. So it was, it was kind of a familiar, like, safe zone for me to get out in the sun to be in the uh, have that large body of water to support my my weight and also I think probably for the lymphatic system that how many gallons of water would that be in a, even in a small swimming pool pushing inward on your body and your joints yeah and just moving yeah just moving right. so that uh, and, and then and moving in ways you probably couldn't on dry land you right because you were you had limitations and you were in pain right so how many years did it take you to get from hospital bed to where you were actually able to just move around quote unquote in a normal fashion. Right. And that's, and that's all, um, you know, most standard PT practices set you up so that you can walk and you can feed yourself and you can go to the bathroom. You know, they're not looking for you to be athletic again like you were. Right. So that's exactly like you described it. That I would say, you know, I was doing, I was still doing physical therapy when I went back to Campbell June um, in 2007. And it continued really until I left the Marine Corps in like the fall of 2007. So it was a good year and a half. Okay. Physical therapy for me to get back um, on my feet, able to do some, you know, I tried to do some walking, jogging, and ended up refracturing my leg because uh, I was a little too aggressive with that. Imagine that. Yeah, funny, right? So, um, so good, yeah, about a year and a half. What was that struggle like to, you know, to have to start over again? You, you went back to, you know, you had got come from this kind of goofy kid that I first met who... You know, obviously, he's had some physical challenges. You call yourself a motor moron to actually be regressed, even, you know, like regressed even more than they than you were. Like you started off as this goofy kid, yeah, and then you end up getting pulled back to square zero. Like, what what kind of mental struggle was that for you? It was uh, it was tough. Um, you know, just because you see the, what your body's been and. It's like banging your head against a wall when you're trying, when your desire is to be back to that level, and it's not happening. Right. Um, I've always been a patient person, and you know, overcoming those hurdles made me even more patient. Yeah. Um, when I'm coaching people, you'll you'll never see me lose my cool, or roll my eyes. I just, I don't have that in me anymore because I understand what it takes to you're going from literally crawling. Right. You know. So it's you are where you are, and you I think, are where and I, you are. And I exactly. think that's uh, that's one of the biggest things that people don't understand is that you know you got somebody who hasn't done much at all, like max effort for them might be the warm up. <laughs> right. People people don't you know they, people are overtraining and they you know they get but for somebody who's untrained, um, just about anything can basically put them in a state where they they can't adapt to it. And so, you know, that's one of the biggest mistakes, I think, in the fitness industry and a reason why people don't, they start, but then they don't continue is because they end up getting thrown into something that's so far above their level that they just, they get frustrated and they, they get, they stop because they're like, oh my God, this is way too, instead of starting where they are and starting with some really simple things, you know, they start off with 
way too much. You know, a lot of it has to do with the internet and everybody's seeing all this fancy bullshit online about this and that and I want to do this and that. They're looking at all these elite people and they don't realize they have to start. Like if you need to go from Lexington to Los Angeles, you've got to start in Lexington. You can't start in Kansas City. Like, exactly. You know, so... Um, you and know, if I had to have that perspective, my recovery would have gone a lot smoother. Sure, but that but you had to learn that exactly. You know, just like I had to almost bleed to death to learn how to actually take care of myself. Right. You know, certain people um, need to get hit in the head with a hammer in order to to learn lessons. But at least you know you and I have both learned, and then we're able to help other people. So at what point, like, t- so you basically uh, like it was 2008. You said yeah you got yourself moving around like how did you what was your next transition from there from you know obviously you were still in the marine corps obviously right um did did you have an option to stay in the marine corps or did you you know you decided you wanted to exit how did that work so at that point in time um my my jordan and i were engaged and i was back at lejeune and my uh, second recon they were getting ready to punch out you know they were on a workup and I was having to sit on the sidelines and watch all my buddies with the new new guys coming into the recon battalion doing this workup and training. And I was driving the Humvees and I was doing paperwork in the office and it was driving me, it drove me nuts. You know, I was having to go to appointments, you know, several times a week over on main side and um, it sucked. And I was, you know, I got tired of it pretty quick and I realized my body's not healing up. I'm not going to be able to redeploy because... Initially, that was one of the things that uh, really pushed me to recover as fast as I did was to redeploy. That was, I had that, that burning desire and, you know, hate at that point in time. Yeah. Um, so when I realized that, okay, I'm not going to be able to go to a range with these guys. I don't want to stay here and, and do admin work. And they gave me the option. They're like, you can finish out your four-year enlistment. But what I did is I went ahead and got the ball rolling. I want to medically separate, which was another seven-month hellacious process of paperwork and, you know, proving how injured I was. I was like, seriously? So that's, that's, that's a whole that's other the, story that's right the government. There. That's the government for you. Oh, my you. gosh. So, did you have, like, an exit strategy once you decided that you didn't want to, to be in there and be, a, be like a paper pusher? Did you have an exit strategy in your mind of what you wanted to do next, or you had no no idea? You know, honestly, I, I knew how much uh, I had enjoyed uh, the learning experience when I got to work with a couple of really good physical therapists, and I said, maybe I could go back to school and be a PT, mm-hmm. uh, but until then, maybe I could just train people, and I could be a you know, personal trainer. So I got, my, uh, I got my certified fitness trainer certification through the ISSA. Uh, through correspondence while I was at Lejeune still, I would just go home in my room and I would study. And at that point in time, I was working a lot with kettlebells. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started to feel really good. And my mistake was, I thought, kettle, well, kettlebells are a part of this thing called CrossFit. Yes. But it's got all this other stuff too. Right. And a lot of you know my buddies were starting to get into it as well. Um, and I said, well, I'll give this, give this a try. So it was a toss-up between doing my CrossFit Level 1 and doing the RKC, which I'd wanted to do since high school. Right. And I, you know, I sh- shoulda, woulda, coulda, but I went the CrossFit route and had to learn some really hard lessons because I beat the shit out of myself. Yeah. Training and got, um, as the term, orthorexia. Yes. Got weird. I call it my weird years. And thank God my wife didn't smother me with a pillow while I was sleeping because, 
you know, like anybody that gets into CrossFit and drinks the Kool-Aid Hardcore, I was 100%. This is the the way to train. Everybody else is wrong. Right. You know, as many, you know, young people think that way. When so, when did you figure that out, that that wasn't working for you? When I was, when I started getting more broken. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are injuries that happened completely uh, non-related to my combat injuries. Shoulder stuff. And I was like, this is not working for me at all. You know, I wanted to be strong i wanted to be fit but i didn't need to do 30 minutes of metcon you know that wasn't my goal i was 155 pounds yeah and um in 2009 we hosted a basic barbell certification with mark ripito at my gym here across or at the gym i was working at the time crossfit lexington and i heard rip get up there and you know i think he called me an insect you know because i was so gangly and praying mantis yeah and it was a joke but i was like i don't even look like i lift yeah, you know, do I even lift? Is the is the joke now? And I, you know, it didn't look like I did, and I wasn't strong. So mm-hmm. that kind of redirected my path, and then um, all you know that kind of coincided also with doing a little bit more, you know, some of the corrective work to bring my body back into balance so that I could train, right? You know, and get stronger because it was a fucking train wreck, man. I mean, I, I wish I had a video of me trying to do. Uh, um, a set of squats, you know, linear progression, you know, from eight years ago, because it was a disaster. I remember. It was, it was yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you helped me a lot with my squat then. Um, but yeah, it was it was gnarly. So that kind of redirected my my thought process, and thankfully removed me from that spin cycle. Um, you know, I sh- probably should have been seeing a therapist then instead of worried about you know a training program. Yeah, yeah, it's a hard. It's a hard balance, especially for people like yourself or, you know, even myself, you know, the, the, the struggle I've had over the last few years of like, yeah, I want to be strong, but at what point does that actually take away from my quality of life? Yes. You know, and, 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 you know, I've seen you struggle with, um, you know, lifting and then figuring out, and I think you've done a really good job of figuring out the right dose for you. You know, and not worrying about what other people online are doing or what everybody else is doing or whatever what works for everyone else. And you know, if your main goal is to be functional and to be above average, you really don't have to do that much. You just have to be really smart about it. Now, if you want to be elite, you want to set world records, you're going to have to make sacrifices. But that's like going in the Marines. Like that's yeah. a totally different, different avenue. But for ninety percent of people. They don't need anything spectacular, and they don't need to be doing you know thirty, forty, forty minute at, uh, metcons several times a week. It's just not not necessary. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about um, your transition as a coach and how you've evolved from you know working at a CrossFit and then you know going out you know on your own and how your experience with your injuries and getting over what you've been through has affected your approach as a coach okay so uh, I left the gym that I was working at uh, about three years ago and you know moved over to LAC and I started running my own show and it was awesome because the one thing that I didn't realize about the coaching environment that I was in was how loud and overstimulating it was and with my brain injury you know the the part of my head that was the most impacted my parietal temporal lobe um, the the auditory processing section of my brain was impacted significantly and that amount of you know overstimulation energy drinks driving myself hard all day left me super duper 
just tired, put out, uh, you know, angry, cranky exhausted. all the time, exhausted. And, you know, LAC, you know, although they don't have the best music selection, everything's toned down. You yes. know, people are a little more chilled out. There's more space. There's, yes. um, you know, even though people are doing some goofy stuff like they do in all gyms, <laughs> you know, there's some people over there that they look like they lift and they, you know, they take care of themselves. A lot of people warm up. They do a good job with that, but it was just, you know, me and my clients, and I was like, this is a really nice, refreshing change to be able to just do my thing and train people how I want to train, which is, sure. you know, build resiliency and strength. Yeah. But, you know, people move well, and then we get them strong, and that's pretty much all I do with people. Everybody does a strength program. It may look very different with a 70-year-old, you know, female client than it does with a young, you know, 20-year-old guy that comes to me and... Maybe he wants to go to the Marines, or maybe he's training for lacrosse. Um, but yeah, everybody everybody builds resiliency, and everybody gets stronger. And uh, I had a, actually had a client. My live day, my ten year live day, was you know earlier this week, on Monday actually. And uh, one of my clients saw a post that I'd made um, about a hat I was wearing that reminded me of my team leader, my good friend Mark Smikowski. And he said, when I saw that picture. He said, I was literally thinking about skipping the gym and not coming. I was going to bail on our session. And he said, I saw that. And he said, I hung my head, but then I also smiled because people have a hard time making excuses around me. Um, I hear a lot, of, uh, a lot of trainers complain that people blame them for their lack of success. And I don't have that issue. I never have people that blame me because I'm always up front about explaining to them, this is your training. Right. This is 100% on you. I'm there to guide you. Right. Um, you know, through your training and nutrition and lifestyle management, it's not my deal. Yeah. Well, so. I, and people tell me that too. Well, you did such an amazing job with this person or they're so, you know, and I'm like, I didn't do it. I just guided them. They did the work. Like, and, and I'm very yeah. upfront when people come into me too. I'm like, if you're not willing to change your diet, change your lifestyle, and at least make an effort at sleeping, then you don't even bother coming in here. Don't waste my time and don't waste yours because... Unless that's all squared away, you're not going to get the results over the long term that that, that, that you would expect. Um, so that's uh, you know that's that's fantastic um, that that you have that perspective with people and you can keep people accountable in a in a way that's uh, reasonable. Yeah. You know, and, and I think you know one of the biggest problems is is people don't understand that if you're in this, people complain to me a lot of times. You know, we don't really turn the music up real loud here. We're not a big like. I'm not a big raw, raw coach. You know, every once in a while, if somebody has to do something where they're pushing themselves a little bit, I'll, I'll get a little animated. You can't learn in a combat situation. <laughs> combat situations are reactions. Yes. Right? Like powerlifting meets is a reaction to training. Yes. Um, and if you're always in that super hyper stimulated, and that's a big mistake I made in my powerlifting was every workout was, you know, Pantera, Fedra, and ammonia caps. You know, yeah, you can drive yourself really hard, but then when you go to competition, you know, you aren't as efficient as you should be. Um, you know, so a lot of people, especially people that are new that don't move well, if you put it, put them in a situation where they feel threatened or they're, they're in a heightened state of alert, they're not going to learn. And the brain is the key to learning new movement. It's the key to everything in the nervous system. And if you're constantly amped all the time, you're not going to learn whether it's physical stuff or even stuff at your job. So being able to shut off that stress response and manage it appropriately is, is, is very, very important. 
Yeah, you got it's you got to keep the brain happy. Yeah, you know, like you said. Let's talk a little bit about that, about the what you've gone through in the last few years with, you know, meditation and and some of the other things dealing with some of the anger and resentment and some of the mental things that you've had to deal with to get yourself in a better place. Okay. Um, so one of the you're just talking about the brain and the and the brain injury. One of the coolest things that I've done, and I did this last year. Um, I did about 20 sessions of neurofeedback training. Um, they call it, we call it brain core, you know, where I get it done. And it's connected to my chiropractic office. And Jenny Sloan did my neurofeedback treatments. And um, I was a little skeptical. Um, basically what it does is creates a more, I guess, uh, an environment of homeostasis so that your brain is not fighting itself. Right. Um, and you're just taking the brakes off. Um, the way that they described it in a really simplistic manner, because you know I'm not a neuroscientist, uh, is that you're you've been taking a path in the jungle that's really squirrely, right. but it's what you know. Right. What we're doing with neurofeedback is we're creating a more streamlined path or paths to get the same you know route accomplished, but it's just more efficient. Way more efficient, right? And after five sessions, I was able to feel some differences. And they became more permanent changes called neuroplasticity. You have the ability to build those new neural pathways, and my memory improved. Um, now I'm, and there's a lot of times when I'm sharper than my wife, who's already really sharp, and I can catch her on stuff now where I used to just get bulldozed in conversation. <laughs> no, your wife bulldozed oh you? My no, gosh. never. She's a strong girl, so. Yes, yeah, she is. God, um, God bless but her. Ability to communicate was better. My sleep. Yeah, my sleep got so much better. I was able to finally calm down. Um, yeah, if you these... can't if you can't relax, if you're constantly in a stress state, you ain't gonna sleep. Oh, and dude. you're not gonna have good hormone production and you know all that stuff. Like, let me tell you, man. When people <clears throat> like, yeah, complain about sleep, fucking a, man. I can relate to that. Let me tell you because I could fall asleep. I literally fell asleep fell asleep on a foot patrol. I took a step and I I was like, oh my god, I just fell asleep walking here. But I lay down on my Tempur-Pedic bed, and you know eyes are open, and I'm waking up. I'm not even kidding. 40, 50 times a night, dude. Yeah. I can get to sleep, but staying asleep, and just toss and turn. So uh, the neurofeedback and the AVE goggles. I don't know if you've have yeah. you even seen those. Yes. They're I've, badass. Yeah. So using those in the evening and the morning to kind of reset my circadian rhythms, really, really nice. Um, and then you know. And I'm still working a little bit on the meditation stuff. Uh, and you but, always will be. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, when, when are you ever going to get great at it? Well, dude, I, I suck at it still, but I continue to try. That, that makes me not a failure because right. I'm not going to give up on it. Um, so right now I'm using the Headspace app again and going through session one through ten, which is just a real simple ten-minute yeah. um, vacation from the craziness that is our days now. When we're just, um, you know, we're going a mile a minute and everything is a play-by-play type of a lifestyle on social media. And uh, we got all this technology to deal with. It's a nice opportunity to tune that out and be a little more mindful, be more grateful about, uh, you know, just being here every day. And that's, you know, that's kind of my goal right now. Just really enjoying life. Yeah. So you do, you do like, um, well, before I get into that. And that's why, like, if you look, the Australian government put out an article on the flow tank and how successful it's been in post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. You know, things, any kind of relaxation therapy for, for people that are just wired, it does amazing things. 
for people and and people just they laugh they're like oh i'm relaxed i you know no you're not i mean you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off and they don't put enough effort into that truly shutting off because we never really get that anymore so you're at lac you do like Mm semi-private you know small group training yeah um you also, you're a kettlebell instructor. You, you do some online stuff as well? Yes. Okay. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. So the the online stuff started, actually my sister was my first client because she lives in Nashville. And, um, you know, at that point in time, she was doing a little bit of stuff in the gym. And I said, you know, I've been wanting to try to train people online. How about you be my first client? I'll train you for free, but you've got to give me feedback on what you need and, right. you know, how we can kind of smooth out the process. So, you know, the long and short of the online uh, training thing is, is programming, but what I do differently is the video coaching. Right. Um, so I like to use an app called Coach's Eye. So people will text me videos, hey, this is my work set today, um, you know, my last set, you know, here's some squats or some deadlifts to look at. And what I'm able to do is I'm able to watch it a couple times and then I can figure out what they need to work on the most and I do a recorded version of like a little play-by-play so I can make notes on there, I can draw arrows, I can zoom in places, um, and it's there's an audio layover of the whole recording so I can be like, this is what you need to work on in your squats. And I'm, other than real-time feedback, you know, being personal right. with people, that's about the next best thing. Um, what's nice is how affordable it is sure, and that you're not limited geographically who you can reach and get in touch with. Absolutely. So I got clients all over the U.S. right now that that cool. train be online. Awesome, and especially the cool thing about what you've been through is learning. You know, one of the best ways to learn how to fix things is to be broken. So, and you've definitely yeah. have yeah. plenty of experience in that in that department. And then also telling people to slow down, you know, and 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 be patient, which you know you definitely can do. Um, let's talk a little bit to close out of where you're at now and some of the goals that you have for yourself in the future. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was contacted by an organization. Go ahead and fill in the name. Yeah, um, it's called Heroes Movement, and their website is theheroesmovement.org. Right. So I, I, the, the gentleman, I can't remember the name of the guy. Mike talking. McKay. Thank you. Uh, my memory's like a goldfish. I probably need some of that, that <laughs> neural feedback stuff. But um, he had put out a message on strengthcoach.com uh, looking for coaches in, in Lexington, Kentucky and there were several people that listed me so he contacted me uh, and was basically they they are a nonprofit and they basically they they, they pay for 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 injured veterans to, to train yeah and um, you know and, and and as a coach you know you have these opportunities that that come to you or you have clients that come to you and you know one thing that I've always done is if if you know whether it's Justin Ford at LAC who coaches Olympic lifts or a guy named Alan Kress at LAC who does bodybuilding coaching and stuff like that. If I get somebody that comes to me and says, hey, I want to be a competitive Olympic lifter, can I coach Olympic lifts? Yes. Can I coach them at a world-class level? No. Whereas Justin can, so I send them to Justin. Or somebody that wants to do a bodybuilding show, I send them to, to Alan because that's their deal. When this gentleman contacted me, he had a client that you know he wanted to basically set somewhere up in Lexington to, to have some of his people work with a guy. And, and in my head, the first person that came in my mind was Chris because I can't think of anybody better to work with these guys than Chris because I can't relate to these guys at all. I, I have an understanding, but Chris can do a much better job. So like if you're a coach and you have the opportunity, you know, if somebody comes to you and it's, it's you think, you know there's somebody that can do a better job, 
send that to that person because it'll pay dividends in the future for your credibility. If you take somebody on who, you know, you're completely clueless about or, or and you end up doing a, a piss poor job, that, that's going to end up reflecting on you in the future. So let's talk a little bit about that opportunity you were presented and, and what your goals are and, and what you're trying to do with that. Yeah. So this is a really cool opportunity that you just, you taught you, like I said, you called me up and I was like, I've been looking for something like this. Uh, I've been wanting to give back and I've been wanting to, I've been wanting to work with more veterans, you know, and adaptive athletes because I can, I'm able to relate to them on that level. So I talked to Mike McKay on the phone about this and, uh, the goal is initially to get a group of, you know, one to six guys and, uh, their training is sponsored through Heroes Movement and um, we're just going to get together we're going to train and you know it's going to be a mixed bag of backgrounds uh, ages will be you know in different places physically but uh, my goal is to work with these guys one-on-one -on -one and then introduce them to the group situation and um, part of what I've experienced on a couple trips I made to Telluride Colorado with uh, with uh, Telluride Adaptive Sports Program is it's kind of like a version of recreational therapy and that you're working for you know kind of a common goal you're training but you share you share things differently with people when you're in those settings and those situations than you would normally uh, it has a way of breaking down barriers and uh, you know building a bond with other people so I'm really looking forward to coaching these guys and being able to talk a little bit and maybe give them some information they haven't heard before or you know kind of spin things in a different way um, yeah, it's, I'm really excited about that next step. Awesome. You know, and I think that's um, part of overcoming adversity is finding a way that you can help other people through the pain you've, you've experienced. Instead of being pissed and angry at the world, you know, taking the, the, the adversity and the, and the trauma that you've been through, because we all go through adversity in different ways, but finding a positive that you can learn from it and be and get stronger from it and 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 then you can turn around and, and help other people uh, you know people get into trouble you know it'd be very easy for you to be pissed at the world um, you know drink your way into oblivion or pop pills um, that would be a very understandable outcome but the fact that you've taken your challenges that you've presented and you've been able to um, help others is and your desire to help others is very honorable you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a, a great blessing and it's something that people, you know, hopefully somebody that's listening to the show is struggling. They can listen to this and be like, you know what, I can learn from this and I can get better from this. And then I can turn around and help other people instead of sitting, you know, at home and going, Oh, why me? Woe is me? Why is this happening to me? Well, these, these opportunities are, opportunities to become a better person you know and you know coal turns into diamonds through pressure yeah and you need to embrace these challenges in your life everyone that i know that is super successful has also been through a lot of shit <laughs> yeah so you know you just need to change your mindset and take a positive outlook on these things instead of constantly complaining or or saying why is this happening to me and, and, and basically capitalize on that challenge and, and, and help others like, like you have. Um, you know, I, I've got to watch your evolution since I met you, and, and you know, I'm, I'm very proud to, to call you a friend. And, and, Thanks, brother. And thank you for your, for your service. And uh, before I get all sappy, hmm. uh, I'll allow you to um, 
you know, please tell people how they can contact you and, and all that good stuff. Sure. So um, I do most of my training at a Lexington Athletic Club here in Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me at chrisfreemanpt.com. Long, long uh, web address. We need to work on that. Uh, Chris is spelled with a K, K R I S. And uh, if you want to do online training, I'm at chrisfreemanpt.trainerize.com. And Trainerize is the app, the portal system that we okay. use to, to host the programs. Cool. Well, Chris, I, I really appreciate you coming on today and, and talking about me. some difficult stuff and, and being as honest and candid as you are. Um, you know, good luck with the veteran stuff. I, I hope people listen to this and, and, and you're able to uh, expand what you're trying to do even more. I hope people reach out to you. And, and you know, I, I would encourage people to share the show, you know, because there's somebody out there that's going through something terrible that, that hopefully this will be able to, to help them out. And Thank you for listening to the, the Jim Laird Show brought to you by Body.io FM. Or not FM, just Body.io. Have a great day. You've been listening to the Jim Laird Show with your host, Jim Laird. If you'd like to hear more, log on to Body.io. Don't miss the next episode of the Jim Laird Show when he'll probably say something inappropriate but unexpectedly insightful.